Uh, I can't resist this chance to share this with you. Some of you may know that um, my graduate work is in liturgical studies, which is about Christian worship. And uh, that hymn was written by Washington Gladden. And Washington Gladden was a leading preacher in the social gospel movement in the 19th century. What's interesting about it is, of course, the social gospel movement then as now was very controversial. And uh, that hymn, which seems, you know, very fluffy and kind and mellow, the verse we don't sing is, Oh, Master, let me walk with thee beside the scribe and Pharisee. And he was talking about his opponents in his denomination (laughs) that were the scribes and the Pharisees. And he wanted God to give him patience to walk with them. So we left that verse out because it's just not so nice to sing together. Um, But that's a little bit more about that hymn than than, uh, maybe maybe more than you wanted to know. I don't know. Well, um, yeah, let me uh, begin by introducing myself for those of you who don't know me. My name is Michael Jordan. Um, My wife, Jill, teaches math at the college Um, I teach when I can in religion, and I raise three kids, Grace, Jack, and Lucy. Grace is five, Jack is three, Lucy is one month yesterday. I'm feeling a little bleary-eyed this morning. Um, It's hard to preach when you're bleary-eyed. It's hard to listen, I guess, when you're bleary-eyed too, so hang with me. Um, And uh, I try to be... um, a person who practices his gifts in this community, but also someone who's just so grateful to live here and recipient of all the gifts that you have. It's a wonderful privilege to live in this community. I was thinking, especially since uh, Lucy was born, just how um, consistent your blessing has been. Uh, It's just been wonderful. We've gotten food and cards and letters and thoughtful things. So we're just very grateful to live here. Uh, It's a wonderful place to be. Also, a rather fun announcement this morning, in case you're curious, Jill and I are married 12 years today. So that's very exciting. Jill's not here. Oh, she's down in the, in the nursery. Uh, and, but she said, I probably heard you preach this sermon before, so it's not, not a big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I, before uh, coming to Houghton, I was a pastor for seven years, and so she probably has heard a sermon like this before somewhere along the way. Um, I grew up coming to Houghton occasionally. My grandparents, uh, Kay and Ken Lindley, were teachers here. And uh, I did preach here in January, and I shared this story, but I should share it with you again uh, for those of you who may not have been here, or, and the rest of you can go to sleep if you like. But I um, was remembering just visiting with them, and we would visit once or twice a year. And um, Mike Walters was the preacher here at that time, and he was just such a wonderful preacher, still is, of course, a wonderful preacher. And uh, I remember being eight or nine and thinking, I want to preach someday, you know, because of largely of what I saw here. And I thought, if you had asked me at eight or nine what I wanted to do most with my life, preaching in this pulpit would have been it. So it's a wonderful privilege to be able to live out that kind of dream. And uh, like I say, I got to do that in January, and now to be able to do it again is is kind of amazing. Well, the sermon I want to preach this morning, I feel, has been kind of seven years in the making. That was how long I spent in the pastorate. And for seven years, there was a sermon I wanted to give, but I just couldn't quite find a way to do it. I could never find out just how to say it right. Uh, Or maybe I knew how to say it right, but just wasn't courageous enough to say it. I don't really know. Um, But whatever the case, it's something that's burned in my heart, and it's shaped my life when I was a pastor. And it's really continued to burn in my heart in a different way in the two years that we've lived here. And I think it's a sermon that's especially important, an idea that's especially important uh, in a place like Houghton, where there are various Christian institutions that many of us find ourselves aligned with as students or as uh, teachers or as staff in these different places. 
So today what I want to talk about is the church, the local church, and even this local church, Houghton Wesleyan, and why I think it's important and why I think it deserves a special place and a special priority in our lives. Specifically, I want to argue, I want to make the case that uh, in, in here I want to say uh, each of us has a special ministry to carry out, not only in the world, not only in the different institutions, be they Christian or not Christian, where we make our money, but each of us has a special ministry to do here in this place. Now, the reason this was hard for me to say when I was a pastor is because people presume that when you say this when you're a pastor, you're doing it out of self-preservation, right? A pastor has to say this, right? Because if people don't do it, then the pastor has to do it, (laughs) right? So people presume that you're doing this because you're getting paid to say this. So I can say, now I'm not getting paid to say this anymore, and I still think it's important. I still think the local church has a special role and place in a Christian's life, um, which perhaps we don't consider enough. Now, that sounds funny to say, I guess, in a sense, because uh, most of us think, well, Christianity and church kind of go hand in hand, so of course the church is important. But, but I don't really think it's a, a given for most people, especially evangelicals. I think evangelicals have, at times, even a healthy distrust of the church, but a distrust of the church nonetheless. I know that for me, uh, when I was growing up, when I considered what it meant for me to follow God's calling in my life, I virtually always thought of it in terms of paid employment, right? When I was a boy, and I don't know if this happened at this church or not, but I know that in in my home church, the phrase full-time Christian service was an important phrase. And when the preacher would invite people to come down and receive Jesus, there would be times also when the preacher would invite people to come down if they felt the call to go into full-time Christian service. And one morning I felt prodded to go down. Who knows exactly what combination of the Holy Spirit and other pressures was bubbling up inside of me as a 9 or 10-year-old. But I felt called to go down and say, I want to go into full-time Christian service. And when I considered what that meant, it virtually was always, as I grew up and I kept that phrase, it's obviously still important to me, I can still remember it. As I considered what it meant, it virtually always meant, what was I going to do to get paid to be Jesus' servant? What's going to be my job? Right? My paid employment was primarily what defined me as a servant of God. If I was working as a missionary or a pastor or a teacher in a Christian school or a Christian college, that makes me a full-time servant of God. I suppose that in this scenario, right, the rest of you are out of luck, right? The businessmen, right, the bankers, the stay-at-home moms, right, they were only part-time Christian servants, right? <laughs> they uh, moonlighted a few shifts for God in around their real job, and right? they could squeeze, squeeze some time in, right? Well, that quite obviously isn't right. I mean, there's nothing that made me any more of a Christian servant when I was a full-time pastor than there is now. At least, I don't think so, right? And there was nothing that made me any more of a full-time Christian servant than the people in the church that I led. In a a sense, you could argue that, in fact, they were the full-time Christian servants because so much of my job was considering how to help them serve, right? Right? I may have been a full-time Christian leader, but I think they were the full-time Christian servants. They were the ones um, meeting day in, day out, being kind of God's secret agents uh, on the field. 
So if we're all full-time Christian servants, if that's true in a sense that all of us are called to full-time Christian service, the question is, what does that look like? How does that work? And there are a couple of answers to this. And of course, what I want to do is kind of put up one answer on this side and one answer on the other side and acknowledge that all of us fall in the middle. Right? But, but one answer over here is the idea that the way to be a Christian servant is through our jobs. What we might call this uh, uh, theology of vocation. Right? And this is an idea that really rose to prominence in the Protestant Reformation. It's, and it's very common today and it has a lot of merit. It's very deep. It's very rich. The idea here is that all of us have needs. We ask God, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us our daily bread. And that we're all actively engaged in helping each other answer our prayers in a sense. Uh, In the words of one writer, the way God gives us our daily bread is through the vocations of farmers, millers, and bakers. We might add truck drivers, factory workers, bankers, warehouse attendants, and the lady at the checkout counter. Virtually every step of our whole economic system contributes to that piece of toast you had for breakfast. And when you thank God for the food you provided, you were right to do so. So we thank God but we do the work on our own. And so how are we full-time Christian servants? Just by doing our job, by doing our vocation. Our very work has eternal meaning and dignity and purpose. In the words of Martin Luther, God himself is milking the cows through the milkmaid, right? So that's one perspective. We do our jobs and that's how we serve God. The other perspective is that the way we serve Christ is in the church, in the local church. We serve Christ when we take part in the things the church is doing. And so as we serve the church, as we work in its various ministries, that's how we serve God. And so from this perspective, God is working through the church, and so we serve God when we serve the church. So our time spent in the nursery wiping bottoms is not wasted, right? Our time spent teaching Sunday school when the children aren't listening, it's still not wasted, because that's how we serve God. We can, when we contribute to the flourishing of the church, we contribute to what God is doing in the world. Now, these are two perspectives, and they're kind of at opposite ends of a spectrum, and none of us would fall completely on one side or the other. Right? None of us would say, only our work matters, and the church can take a hike. Right? And none of us would say, only the church matters, and so work can take a hike. Right? Somewhere in between is where all of us have to fall. And we each have to find that balance in our own lives, uh, being true to God's calling in all different aspects um, of our lives. But, But is it okay if I say that today, I think the church gets a little unfairly overlooked? I don't know what you were thinking when I was kind of putting up these two ideas, but I know for a lot of people, the idea of serving God in the world, doing that thing that I'm made to do, that fills me with joy, that fills me with excitement. And then the idea of helping the programs of the church go forward, ugh, right? It's exciting to think, hey, when I go into the world, I'm doing God's work every second, every day. But when it comes to making sure, I don't know, some program at the church goes off that I don't really care about and that I don't really benefit from, we feel ourselves kind of kind of sink inside. I think there's a lot of perhaps cultural zeitgeist behind living out our vocations and maybe not as much uh, in giving ourselves to the church even when it's not something that directly benefits us or excites us. So what I want to do again is to kind of build a case for why service to the church 
is important. And why it's not enough to say, my job is my ministry. The things I do out there are the way I serve God. So I want to give you three reasons, right? I'm still a preacher, so I still do three things, right? Three reasons why I think this. And I want to use the the passage from 1 Peter to kind of build a a template uh, for these reasons. Reason number one is, and this will sound like I'm giving it faint praise, but our church is not all that unhealthy. That's reason number one. Our church is not all that unhealthy. A lot of us, it's very fashionable today, uh, even among Christians, to sort of shake our heads and complain about how churches are not what they could be, right? I mentioned Martin Luther before, and, and the fact is that the Protestant Reformation was what really brought out this idea of serving in the world. Our service in the world has dignity. Our daily work is a profound way to serve God. And Luther and the Reformers were very right to do that. It was very important that they brought out that idea. They were right to help us understand that our daily work, no matter how menial it seems, it's God's work if it contributes to meeting human needs. That was good. That was important for them to bring out. But part of the reason why it was so important for them to bring that out was that the church was a terribly corrupt place in the 16th century. Right? Take, for example, uh, the doctrine of clerical celibacy, priestly celibacy, that priests have to be celibate. Well, priests didn't like that any more then than they do now. And uh, in the days of Martin Luther, it was not at all uncommon for priests to have concubines on the side. Now, that was illegal, of course, in the eyes of the church. And so the church would make the priest pay a fine as punishment. And the priest said, fine by us. We'll pay our concubine tax, right? Well, that's fine, nice. We're happy to pay a little bit of money if it means that we get to break the rules. And the church said, you know what? We have lots of projects we need to do. We have buildings we need built, etc. And you know what that takes is money. So priests, go ahead, keep your concubines. Just be sure the bill gets paid because we need money and you would like a concubine so it all works out, Right? That was the situation in which Martin Luther came into, combined with the fact uh, that the church's sacramental system at the time was this closed kind of thing that said, this is how God works in the world, through the church, only through the church. How can you receive grace? At the altar, at the Eucharist. The church defines exactly how God works. The church had a whole lot of control over how the average person experienced God, and they did it in terribly abusive ways. The leaders of the church were not trustworthy. Uh, Of such leaders, Ezekiel 34 seems appropriate. You shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep, right? So those leaders were something, something like that. And Luther's response and the Protestants' response was to say, wait, 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 wait. The church doesn't have a monopoly on what God is doing. Your daily work means something. Baker, Miller, Farmer. Your work means something to God and not because some corrupt church says so. So let's acknowledge that the church can be corrupt, but let's also be fair and say that Pastor Wes is not a corrupt pope, right? He hasn't encouraged, I presume, Todd, he hasn't encouraged the other staff members to engage in corrupt behaviors so long as they pay money to the church. Is that correct? Okay. 
I have not yet read a missive from the board of elders saying, hey, we'll knock off a little time in purgatory if you give a little extra money now, right? This is not them. And a lot of the, the reason why Martin Luther had to bring out the daily work has meaning was because the church had fallen so far from what it needed to be. While we acknowledge the church can still fall short of what it needs to be, I think we can also say that this is a safer place to give ourselves to. It's not perfect, but it's safer. The end of the chapter previous to the one Elaine read, at the end of 1 Peter 1, it talks about the new birth that we know through Christ. We've been born anew. We've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We have eternal sorts of uh, dignity and meaning and purpose. And so the first part of chapter 2 says, therefore, because of that, because you've been born anew, rid yourselves of malice, guile, insincerity, Envy, slander. So the first argument I would raise about why uh, we should give a portion of ourselves to the church is that the church is a good kind of place for this to happen. Not a bad kind of place for this to happen, like perhaps the church at that time, but the church is a good kind of place for this to happen. Think for a second what the world would look like, the world outside, if we were to immediately get rid of all malice, guile, insincerity, envy, and slander. Consider what it would look like even if only you never practiced those things. You would never succeed, (laughs) right? Malice and slander are great ways to climb a corporate ladder. Malice and slander are great for defeating opponents. Without envy, our economy would shrivel up and die. Guile and insincerity, that's the mother tongue of our culture, especially in the age of irony. At least since the Simpsons have been on for 20 or 21 years or whatever it's been, right? (laughs) I'm not blaming the Simpsons. I'm just saying we live in the age of of irony where it's cool to have guile and insincerity. And in fact, there's no bigger loser than the person who's guileless and sincere. The person who's naive, they're the biggest loser of all. People who genuinely want to live this sort of life need a place to do it. It's not healthy to do it out there. It's not safe in a way. I'm not meaning to say the world out there, bad, church, good, right? I'm just saying it's scary to do it out there. We need a place where we can be guileless without fear. We need a place uh, where we can deny envy its power. We need a place where malice and slander don't make you climb to the top of the food chain. We need a church. The church isn't immune to those realities, but can we at least say that the church is pointed in the right direction and so deserves our efforts? Because if we don't give ourselves to the church, the church's ideals, that ideal of never having guile, insincerity, malice, slander, that will atrophy and die. But if we give ourselves to it, those ideals grow. And this becomes a safe place to live the Jesus-centered life like that. So that's reason number one. Our church is not all that unhealthy, and we need a place to make it stronger. Reason number two is we need each other. They say that all preachers only have one sermon. It just sort of takes different forms. And this is my sermon. We need each other. 
The, the next four verses of the passage say, uh, talk about Jesus as a living stone and, and says, like living stones, Jesus is a living stone, so be like him, be a living stone and quote, let yourself be build, built into a spiritual house. Now, what I I find really interesting in this kind of part of the passage is the way that very passive language is combined with very active language. The first thing is, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, right? Uh, Which essentially seems to say, uh, let yourselves, uh, you know, allow yourselves to be used by someone else or something else. Presumably here, the Holy Spirit is building a house, and we're simply to allow ourselves to be part of the project, But then all of a sudden the language shifts and we're not just supposed to be built into something, but we also have a specific task to be a priesthood for God and offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, what exactly that means is really unclear. And I don't want to get down that bunny trail because we'll never get back, right? But both the passive and the active parts of that passage are corporate callings. They're callings that are designed to be done together. How do we let ourselves be built into a house if we're the only stone, right? On our own, we're just stones. Together, we're a house. On our own, we're just renegade priests. Together, we're a holy priesthood. I think in the world outside, with all of our callings, which are good, noble, and holy, We sometimes lose sight of how those callings, even though they're good, divide us. Even when we're doing good and godly things out in the world, um, we we lose sight of how those callings still can divide us. Um, I was thinking about the hierarchy in the academic world, and many of us here are attached to the academic world, and there's a certain hierarchy, there's a certain pecking order to the way that works, right? You can wear a hood once you get a master's degree, but not before. You can wear stripes on your sleeve once you get a doctorate, but not before. You can say certain things in faculty meeting once you have tenure, but not before, right? (laughs) Now, I'm I'm not here to knock this reality because, really, there's nothing wrong with a hierarchy like that. Uh, That hierarchy, I think, is very important to relationships in some way. Um, When I came back to Houghton, I was teaching a little bit, and I was teaching a, a course in worship and sacraments. And the first day I sat in class and was teaching... Mike Walters walked by the class outside and he waved coyly at me. And I thought to myself, what on earth am I doing teaching this class? Right? Because he knows this stuff way better than me. Right? He's so much smarter and kind of cooler than me too, you know? What, what, what am I doing? I don't know anything compared to my teachers. And that, of course, is in some way true. Right? The rankings exist so that we can point in some way to people who have been faithful for a long time in stewarding their gifts, right? If you go to a hospital, I'll bet you want it to be hierarchical in some way, don't you? If I have to be operated on, I would not like them to say, you know what, over here is a doctor who's done this six times a day, five days a week for 20 years, but, you know, we're a non-hierarchical hospital, so here's an intern who's been here for a week, and we'll let him take your gallbladder out, right? Right? Hierarchies are okay. That's part of life. They're even useful. But you know, in some ways, hierarchies are detrimental. Hierarchies keep us mysteries to each other. I had a, 
I'm not great at, okay, I'm horrible at home improvement stuff. And yet we bought an old house, right? There were lots of reasons for this, and it was still a good decision. But it is an old house, and there are things I need to learn, or there are things I need to pay other people to do more accurately, right? So I called someone, was trying to pay them to come and do something, and this person was such a loving, kind person, and said to me, you know what? I could take your money to do this stuff, but I'll teach you to do it. And so I've been dutifully working on projects. I've been learning to use power tools without breaking my arms. I've been learning to climb ladders without falling off, right? Because this person wanted to share knowledge with me. And I realized what a rare thing that was. I would not have heard that in suburban Philadelphia. In suburban Philadelphia, someone would have been glad to take a lot of my money to do those projects for me. Why? Because that's what hierarchies do. He was much up high, higher up on that hierarchy than me. And he could have used that position of power to exploit me, to gouge me, or just to laugh at me when he got together with other people who know what they're doing. But he didn't. Most often, people don't share knowledge with each other because knowledge is power, right? which is to be accrued and maintained. And so hierarchies keep us mysteries to each other. Again, hierarchies can be good, but we all have to acknowledge that in some way, those hierarchies are not real. They have no real power. They have no real meaning in our standing before God. They don't affect our intrinsic values as human beings. And the church, on the other hand, is the one place where those hierarchies can be exposed for what they are. And it's a place where we're called not to be mysteries to each other, not people who keep knowledge to ourselves so that we can get more, 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 more power, but instead where we can be the priesthood we've called, been called to be. We need the world of hierarchies, but we need a world that reminds us of who we really are, where people of different skills and different skill levels are all reminded of their equality and their essential dignity as human beings and their unique calling within the people of God. So when we give ourselves to the church, when we give our time and ourselves here, we're not just helping God in some generic way, which we could do better on our own. We're bearing witness to what real community is. And we're bearing witness to the fact that those hierarchies which divide are not real and are not powerful. So that's reason number two. We have a, we're called to be together. And reason number three is that we're called on to proclaim Christ together. The end of this passage says, you're not just made into a holy priesthood, but you have a job to do. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that, because, so that, you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason God does this, the reason God builds us into a house, the reason God knits us into a priesthood is because our fellowship itself preaches to the world. It tells the world something about God. There is a sense in which any proclamation about God is not complete unless it is accompanied by radical unity and mutual love. You can say anything you want. You can be theologically correct, you can be powerful, you can be convicting, but words alone never convey the mighty acts of God in the way a loving and unified community does. And this is especially true today when you consider 
the culture wars America and the church find itself in. We live in a world, and increasingly, regrettably, we live in a church, not this local church, but capital C Church, where words like justice and words like holiness have lost their meaning. And so those words become spears we use to attack each other. And so holiness becomes code for being a Republican, and justice becomes code for being a Democrat. And both sides of all these culture wars maintain the moral high ground. And you say, I've got holiness if you're a traditionalist. And you say, I've got justice if I'm a progressive. And each side secretly feels that the only thing keeping the church being from what it could really be is if those other people would either shape up or ship out. Right? And so everyone is on the moral high ground. The only problem is that they're on two different hills. Right? And because we feel the church would be better without the other people, we like to stay on our hill. And occasionally, we may lob criticism over at the other hill. We might put something passive-aggressive on Facebook. We might enjoy some self-righteous listening to talk radio. But most of the time, we're just inclined to pretend the other side isn't there. And we can make fun of them when they're not with us. This fracture in the body of Christ preaches. It proclaims something about God to the world. But it doesn't preach good news. It preaches bad news. It tells the world that what God cares about is ideological purity instead of healed relationships. It proclaims something about God that is not true. How much more powerful would our preaching be, our message that we preach together? If we started by acknowledging that traditionalists don't have a monopoly on holiness and progressives don't have a monopoly on justice. How much more powerful would it be that if we acknowledge that our personal need to change and to grow is greater than our need to win a culture war? Can you imagine what that would tell people about God? If we saw the divisions and the differences between us as an occasion, I don't know, instead of to win, to listen, to consider, sometimes even to change our minds, sometimes not, but to be thankful for the chance we have to listen and be with each other, that would proclaim an amazing message about God. It would tell the world that God treasures deep relationships. It would tell the world that God values truth and that God is merciful to those who seek it and honors their quest even when they don't get it just right. What an amazing message. And it's not one that I can preach. It's only one that we preach together by our unity or lack thereof. This is why the church is important. This is why it's worth investing our time to support its ministries. We do something together that we just can't in our workplaces. No matter how Christian they are. Here God brings us together, zealots and tax collectors, if you will, and says, the way you live together tells the world about me. There's a big clock in the back of this church, isn't there? That's when you know you're out of time. Well, you can tell that I'm passionate about the ministry of the local church. And I guess I just wanted to close things by saying something else I wouldn't have said when I was a pastor. And that is, yes, I am talking to you, right? When you're preaching, sometimes you get tempted to say things artfully enough so that everybody thinks you're talking about someone else. But no, in this case, I really am talking about you. 
and you, and you and me, right? In a few weeks, the church is going to be going into a new program year, and there are going to be many new ways to get involved and serve this fellowship, to strengthen it for its vital tasks. And I hope that you'll consider them. I hope you'll consider them differently after the sermon than you would have before the sermon. I will hope you consider them not just alongside your other commitments, but giving them a special pride of place that the church deserves. When we give ourselves to the church, not only does the church's, uh, do the church's tasks happen better, but we find out who we really are. A kingdom of priests with a message for the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for calling us into this body of believers. What an incredible privilege it is um, when we are in need to have people bear us up in prayer and to bring us food, to love on us, to care for us. God, what an amazing mission you've given to us, and it's one that we can only do together. So we pray, God, that you'll strengthen each of us to think about how we can help that to happen in your way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.